everybody. Um, we're back here with School Psych Podcast, and it's a little bit different because we are in the afternoon instead of the evening. So I'm glad that everybody who's watching is able to uh, accommodate that and tune in at a little bit of a different time. And maybe this is a better time uh, for some people. So let us know what you think about, you know, a psych podcast afternoon time. We can talk about that in the future. But I'm Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. So excited tonight. We've had Dr. Reynolds on before and it was a great conversation. And I know that um, he's one um, that has so much expertise that we could have him on for, you know, 100 million podcasts. And I think we wouldn't even scratch the surface of the knowledge that he has. So I'm so excited to have roped him back in for a second kind of follow up episode. Um, so I know that everybody has a lot of questions. So feel free to post that. I also want to remind people that we have a sponsor for this episode. And so um, there's a link in the bottom of YouTube. And Rebecca's going to tell you a little bit more about our sponsor, but I'd love for you guys to like click on that link and check them out and maybe have a conversation with them and see how that they can help you as a school psychologist um, with job opportunities and things of that nature. But going to pass it on to Rebecca, who's going to tell you more and tell you how to participate. Rebecca? Yes. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. I hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Um, before we talk about performance validity and get into the meat of our program, I wanted to let you know about our wonderful sponsor. Um, it's important as school psychologists to have a strong support system in your career, and it's instrumental in finding placements and opportunities that fit your goals. That's why we are proud to partner with Advanced School Staffing, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide offering the advantage of W-2 employment status along with full health insurance coverage and 401k retirement options, Advanced is a true advocate for your career success. To learn more about Advanced School Staffing and discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, please visit advancedschoolstaffing.com forward slash school psyched exclamation mark. And now to um, just to tell you, remind you how to participate, please log into your YouTube account if you are watching us live right now and comment right along the video screen. You can also, if you want to send a, a more anonymous message or a private message, inbox us or message us on the Facebook pages, School Psych, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psych Podcast page on Facebook, or on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast, and we'll be looking out for notifications. If you are watching not live, the recorded version later, or listening on iTunes or Stitcher, also please feel to comment, share your um, questions or thoughts, and we would look forward to continuing the conversation over time. Now I'm going to pass it off to Eric, who is going to introduce our wonderful guest. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, we're excited to have a conversation again with Dr. Cecil Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds has been a guest here before, and we were pretty giddy the first time he came on just to get a chance to talk with someone who's so knowledgeable and experienced in the field. And he's also so down to earth and just a wonderful person to talk with. So welcome again, Dr. Reynolds. I'll just to give a little introduction for anyone who might be new to the field. Dr. Reynolds has authored uh, over 45 books, um, numerous articles, received numerous awards, and has authored over a dozen tests. And the ones that probably people are most familiar with would be the, the Basque and the, the Basque family of assessments, uh, as well as the RIAS, a Reynolds uh, intellectual assessment. And there are numerous others, but those are, are certainly two that I use most frequently. And I'm sure uh, our listeners are, are familiar with many of those. Um, 
if you are not familiar with Dr. Reynolds, if you, we can share the link to our previous um, podcast with Dr. Reynolds and, um, and you can hear introduction, his uh, sharing candid stories about playing baseball professionally as well. We had a wonderful conversation. So uh, you can check out that conversation as well. But we really would love to talk with Dr. Reynolds uh, this afternoon about the state of school psychology. And in particular, a question had come up about performance validity and what that is. And perhaps if you're in the neuropsych field, you might have uh, heard that word before, but a lot of us in school psychology have not. So. Um, Dr. Reynolds, welcome. Thank you for spending the time with us this afternoon. And tell us a little about performance validity. What is this? Well, uh, performance validity testing is something that, is, as you mentioned, has been around in neuropsychology for, oh, at least uh, 80 years. Um, and uh, quite possibly before that, but uh, I can think back to performance validity tests that neuropsychologists were doing 40 years ago. And performance validity testing has gone by lots of different names. And that's the current name. That it, for some reason, the, the name gets bandied around. Uh, but it really is a means of assessing the level of effort of the person you're testing. And uh, as school psychologists, many of the tests that we give are what uh, measurement scientists refer to as maximum performance tests. We generally divide the field of tests into two broad categories. Uh, one is typical performance tests, and that's what you're getting when you look at, for example, behavior rating scales, personality scales, um, attitude surveys, anything like that. Those are typical performance scales, and they're there you're attempting to answer the question, how does this person usually think, feel, and behave? With a maximum performance test, which is something like an intelligence test, memory, academic achievement, anything like that, you're really trying to figure out how well can they do it. So we want them to do the best that they can do, right? If you're giving somebody an intelligence test and they're not trying their best, then you haven't measured their intelligence, right? You've measured a lot about other things that are related to their intelligence. And you know, whatever score they get, that they're at least that smart. But if they didn't really try hard and give you their best, they might be this smart. And all you got was here. So neuropsychologists, because they have been interested in the relationship of behavior to brain function, have typically included measures of effort. And that's what performance validity tests are. They are measures of the level of effort that you're getting. And if you're trying to determine brain behavior relationships, it's impossible to do that unless you got the person's best effort. And Ralph Raytan in particular really pounded that into the heads of neuropsychologists right up until his last seminar, which he did when he was about 93. Um, so <laughs> his entire career, he just kept pounding on us that 
if you didn't get their best effort, you didn't measure brain behavior relationships and you can't draw any inferences about that. So it has become increasingly important for us to assess effort in what we're doing. And uh, as a school psychologist, as I looked around, I've been doing effort testing forever because I was also, I was trained duly in, in neuropsychology as well as school psychology. And I just thought, well, why aren't we doing this? It's central to a lot of the interpretations that we make. I'll give you a, a good example. I see periodically on some of the uh, large school psych Facebook pages, like uh, um, uh, like uh, said, no school psychologist ever, which is a great, uh, great Facebook page. And there's there are a couple of others that are really good, too. Or on listservs, like the, the, there are a couple of school psychology listservs. And periodically, people will post something and say, wow, I can't, I, I'm having trouble making sense out of this. Uh, I just got a, a, a referral for a, a new evaluation. Somebody tested this, this person five years ago. And here, the, here are their IQs from five years ago. And here are the IQs I got now. And there's 25, 30 points difference between then and now and, and what could be causing that. And one of the things that I tell people in that situation, uh, among other things, is that if you don't have effort testing from then and effort testing now, you can never answer that question satisfactorily. Because it may simply be as simple as they didn't try nearly as hard this time. <laughs> you know, or maybe they didn't last time and you were much better at establishing rapport and you got a much better effort out of them. So without objective data, about their level of effort, you really can't answer those questions. So the, the other thing that we know is that some of the, you know, when we do comprehensive exams of kids, it takes a long time, right? We don't sit down and just assess kids for an hour and say, you know, thanks, see you later, right? Um, it can be days, right? <laughs> um, and over that period of time, kids' level of effort will wax and wane, right? And they, and as they become comfortable and they're rolling along doing the testing, their level of effort can fade, and they're not giving you their best. Well, the way we do performance validity testing, which is synonymous with effort testing, is that we kind of sprinkle it in throughout our assessment. We don't, do, we don't just do an effort test at the beginning. We do one early, and then we do one a little later. We do one later. We do one later. And now people are thinking, I don't have time for that. <laughs> but one of the nice things about effort tests, and in particular, uh, one that I'll try not to uh, harp on too much, uh, um, which is mine, I uh, released a battery of effort tests for school psychologists the, the end of April, and because of the COVID lockdown, nobody noticed. Um, it, it's, it's a secret, but now I guess I'm letting it out. We published this test the end of April. 
Um, it only takes five minutes. Um, a really good, well-designed effort test, which I will tell you mine is, um, <laughs> uh, only takes about five minutes. And it works really well. <clears throat> and it tells you whether or not you're getting really strong effort from the individual. Because we designed them to look at that. And um, the way effort tests are designed are that you present someone with a series of tasks that look really hard. But it turns out they're not. It's really easy. And if you try hard, it's rare to miss an item. So most people who are really working at it will get all or almost all the items correct. And it goes really fast. Uh, if they're not giving you good effort, then they'll start missing items. Or if they're not attending, they'll be missing too many items. And the test immediately flags that, so you know. So we can use that in a lot of different ways. I think the forensic applications of that are obvious. I mean, if you're, um, if you're assessing a kid, for example, whose parents are hoping to get a Social Security disability check, um, believe it or not, <laughs> parents will ask their kids and, and teach their kids to malinger right and not give good effort and not do well on your testing so th those kind of applications for, for performance fluidity testing are really obvious i mean we know we we just have to include them uh, in any kind of forensically related exam but where i think we really need them in school psychology is because we do do lengthy exams and the kids do wax and wane during that time and we all think that we know when kids are not giving us their best effort. And what I can tell you is we're not good at that. <laughs> there is a lot of research. I have a, uh, I have a three hour talk on this. Uh, and as part of that, I review the actual research on whether or not well-trained, experienced psychologists can detect inadequate effort or not. And we are slightly better than chance. We are slightly better than flipping a coin at detecting that. So the tests are very good at it. They are extremely sensitive. Um, uh, our uh, suite of performance validity tests have sensitivity values that run around 95%. So we detected about 95% of the time. The, the research on our ability to detect it by interact, just interacting with people without measuring effort is that we are about 53 to 55% accurate. So we're a little better than flipping a coin, but not much. And given that these tests are so short and relatively inexpensive, there's no reason not to do it. And there's lots of reasons to do it because 
most of the kids that we see are not attempting to malinger. They're not trying to fool us. They just get lazy during the, during the exam, if you will, or they get they, they habituate in some way to it. And this will detect that. And then we can let them know and we can encourage them and go back to our rapport building and remind them how important it is at that point in the exam to come back, to come back to us with their full attention and their best performance. And we can reiterate for them how important that is. And we can let them know, you know, I tell kids at that point, say, you know, uh, I know you were working really hard with me on this for a while. And it looks like you've kind of slowed down a little bit on on your level of effort. And just so you know, uh, some of the tests I give actually measure how hard you're trying. And I know you didn't you didn't do this on purpose, but it looks like you've slacked off on me some and maybe gotten a little too comfortable with it. And I really need you to give me your best. This is really important. And so let's go back to being sure that you're doing your best with me. And so you can do that with the kids in a nice way, in a rapport building way and not, not chastise them or anything like that. That's not what it's about. Uh, in a forensic context, by the way, I don't tell them. I tell them at the beginning of the exam that I'll be periodically uh, mixing in tests that measure effort. But then I don't tell them when I do it, and I don't tell them if they fail effort test if it's a forensic exam. But that's very different than what we typically do. So that context is, it, it drives how I deal with it when I have effort test failure during an exam. But I like to use it to encourage kids and bring them back into the exam with me. And, um, you know, I just know that we all have in our gut this sense that we know. But, uh, and I did too. I thought, uh, you know, uh, I don't need tests to do this. And not with kids, you know, they're not that sophisticated. And, um, but then I dug into the research and started reading it. And if you believe in our science, if you believe in evidence-based practice, you're not good at it. <laughs> and I'm not either. And I sure thought I could do it. And I'm old. And I've evaluated thousands of kids and adults. And, you know, I'm pretty good at observing kids. And I'm pretty comfortable with them. And, uh, I, I, in fact, I, I, I never use technicians, uh, which a lot of neuropsychologists do, because uh, my favorite part of the whole thing is the actual interaction with the kids and observing them. I love to watch kids take tests and see how they react and see what they do. And so I really want to believe that I can tell. But the research evidence says I can't. And I'm going to tell you, you can't either. 
I really like that because I, I, you know, I think the typical caveat that at least me and and many reports that I've read will say something like uh, rapport was established with the child. Child seemed to put forth their best effort. Therefore, the results of this evaluation appear to be uh, accurate representation of the child's skills. So having data that contributes to that would certainly be uh, far better. And then an ability to reflect yeah. with the child and encourage. Well, exactly. You know, continue to encourage exactly. Best and, um, and I think that's the best way for school psychologists to use performance validity tests. And they really are central to being able to interpret maximum performance tests. If you, you give a child a reading test, you really want to know how well can they read. You, you know, you could probably say, well, um, it, it, is it more important how they typically read when they're sitting in class, not paying attention and bored? Well, not if you're trying to diagnose whether or not they have a reading disability, right? You want to know how well can they read? And if they don't give you their best effort on that reading test, you can't answer that question. So it really comes back to our ability to interpret our maximum performance tests. And again, those are things like any achievement test. And think about memory tests. Boy, if kids aren't really giving you their best effort, um, how in the world can you measure memory and, and processing? And memory batteries, by the way, are a great way to measure processing. Uh, you can tweak memory tasks just a little bit here and there and radically alter the processing of the stimuli and really change how well people perform on memory tests because they're low G. Uh, and anything that's low G, uh, you can measure finer and finer slices of processing the lower the G, the G component. And so memory tests are really good for that. Um, the intelligence tests, not so much. They're high G. And, but still, you've got to have their best effort in order to draw conclusions about their intelligence, about their ability to read, about their memory, about any, any of those things that we get concerned about with cognitive processes and academic skills. We've got to have their best effort. If I could jump in with a question about the what you said about the uh, a forensic evaluation is: Are you not looking then? Do you not want to measure effort because you are looking at the impact of low effort? Are you? Is that because you're looking maybe for trauma history? Well, in a What's forensic evaluation, there? typically people are making some kind of claim for gain. And you want to know if they're being honest with you. So when you do your exam, if they present themselves in a manner that is untrue, that's part of the exam. And that's part of what you need to report back to the person who retains you to examine them. So you're really in part of your job in the forensic setting is to assess the veracity of the presentation. So for example, um, if uh, I'm seeing someone uh, where uh, they were in an automobile accident and they had the, or are claiming a traumatic brain injury, 
and I look at their MRI and it's clean, uh, but they did hit their head and maybe they were unconscious for two, three minutes. Uh, so they may or may not have some residual effects from that. And so if they come in and are giving me an honest presentation and doing their best, I can detect whether or not they have any residual effects from that injury. But if they come in and let's say it's, let's say it's a, a 13 year old and mom and dad have said, now you really need to make a lot of mistakes in this exam because there's a lot of money on the table and we really need you to look like you had a brain injury. Well, I need to detect that. And effort testing is one of the ways that you do that, is to look at the veracity of their presentation. So that's part of what you're looking for in forensic exams. Uh, are you getting an honest presentation? And, and we talk about um, uh, that there are other kinds of, of measures you do in situations like that that are called symptom validity tests which also evaluate the honesty of their self-report of symptoms. So we know that certain symptom patterns follow and what those symptom patterns are and how they cluster. So you also survey people's self-report of symptoms. And there's a whole separate set of measures that look at the validity of self-reporting of symptoms. And those are called symptom validity tests. And those are common in forensic settings as well. They usually do not, uh, are not called for in the typical exam a school psychologist would do. But they get back to the veracity of the exam. And, we, and we, we group all of that under a heading of what we call dissimulation, uh, which sounds like a, a big, fancy, technical, uh, you know, jargonistic word. But when you break it down, we call it dissimulation because the person is coming in and presenting themselves in a way that's dissimilar from how they really are. <laughs> and that's part of your job in a forensic role is to make that determination. Uh, are they or are they not making an honest presentation? Now, um, I'd never heard of performance validity tests um, until in North Carolina to be able to assess for TBI. You had to go through a certification course and you had to do some time under a neuropsychologist to, to get more informed on that. And so that was the first time that I had heard a performance validity testing is him as, as a neuropsychologist. I had never, at least I don't recall hearing about it in graduate school. Why do you think it is that um, school psychologists maybe don't use this or haven't been trained on this or don't even know what exists? Well, what, I think it's because um, in general, we didn't think it was necessary. But unless you've been living under a rock for the last two years, um, you know, you've seen now clear, distinct evidence with people like, uh, who's it, uh, Lori Laughlin going to prison because uh, they got their children to malinger on exams to get into special admissions programs in colleges and universities. Um, so it's really come to light 
that kids will engage in a dishonest presentation. And that kind of highlighted the need for it. You know, if you're if you're evaluating a, a high school kid who says, and, and policies on whether or not school psychologists do this vary by district around the country. But if you're evaluating a kid who is looking for accommodations on the SAT or ACT, uh, they have good reason to be dishonest in taking the test, right? And again, we've always thought we, we would know, right? And now we have lots and lots of data that says, no, we don't know when they're being honest with us and giving their best effort and when they're not. So I don't think school psychology is a profession. And I, and I didn't think about it that much, which is funny because, um, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't routinely use them with kids uh, where there was no forensic issue or no, uh, or where they didn't stand to gain something like I always used them in social security disability exams. Um, and things like that. But I didn't use them, for example, if I was doing a, an independent exam for a school district. Uh, I didn't typically use use performance validity tests. Uh, but um, now I think because of the research that we have that says we're not good at it <laughs> and the clear evidence we have that kids do it uh, and then just our experience is, you know, as I was saying, it, you know, having kids wax and wane with their effort. That we do need now. It would be because of the research base, uh, I think, um, a, a significant error on our part not to do it now that we know. I think the, the excuse for why we didn't do it in the past was we were ignorant. And, and I include myself in that group of uh, ignoramuses, if you will. <laughs> and, but now we know. And when, and as, as, you know, people are fond of saying, when you know better, you do better. Well, now we know better, we have to do better. And uh, it, it's time. It's time to bring this practice into school psychology uh, as a routine part of what we do. But you're right, uh, Rachel, that uh, most school psychologists have never heard of performance validity testing or by any of its other names. I bet you hadn't heard of symptom validity testing or even had or even heard of uh, performance validity testing referred to as effort testing. Um, probably until you encountered a neuropsychologist. It's just, um, it was just unusual in school psychology, but um, we make, and the other reason that, that I think it's time is, you know, I think we all realize, and we've known, but we don't always think through the fact that what we are doing is making very high stakes decisions about children's lives. And I've heard people say, well, I always use them if I'm going to court because the stakes are always high. Well, wait a minute. The stakes are just as high 
when we're trying to decide whether or not a child is eligible for services in special education. That is a life-changing decision. It really is. And we don't always think about that, but it is. You know, uh, there's upside and downside to determining that a child belongs in a special education program. You know, the upside is, assuming we, we got it right, the upside is they can get special services that are going to make them more successful in life. In a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. So it gives them access to things that they need. But you know, depending on the eligibility decision, it can also deny them access to certain things as an adult, for example. There are certain things you can't do. There are jobs you can't have with certain special education diagnoses in the schools. Once you graduate, there's some loss there. So that's the downside of that. But our hope is that the benefits outweigh the costs. But these are absolutely high stakes decisions that we're making about kids and whether or not they should be in a special education program and whether or not it's time to bring them out of a special education program if they've been in one. You know, uh, admission, review, and dismissal from special ed. Those are all high stakes decisions that have major effects on children's lives and on families. So when I hear people say, well, I, I always use it if I'm going to court because the stakes are always high. That's my reaction. Wait a minute. The stakes are just as high if I'm making a decision or, or I'm part of a team that's going to listen to my recommendation very carefully about whether or not a child should be in a special education program. That's just as high stakes. Yes, I, I completely agree. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you were talking about how we don't talk about this um, in graduate school and how we're looking when we're making those um, sort of behavioral observations about effort. We're, we're just kind of looking for what they do and the sense of connection and um, whether they, you know, sort of their speed of, of response. But, um, and I can see how that could be completely subjective and inaccurate. I totally see that. But, um, so I haven't really thought about um, ever measuring like specifically effort the way you are describing it in these tests. But I have thought before about um, self-determination theory, DC and Ryan, and and I wonder how that's related. They say that there are these three variables that contribute to motivation or productivity and that they're connection, um, competence or self-efficacy. And um, what's the other one? Connection, self-efficacy and um, I can't remember. Competence. <laughs> There's one more that I have to think about, but it'll come to me in a minute. But do you, like, how is that different? So they, on their self-determination theory website, they also have 
measures of this, but it's self-report. It's, you know, to say, uh, oh, autonomy is the third one. Do I feel like this is something I want to do that is important to me? And so they they measure each of those three variables just by asking, how do you feel in these areas? Is that is that something that plays into, is effort like a narrow slice of that? I think, I think the things you're talking about certainly affect effort in uh, in a testing situation because, you know, particularly the very first thing you talked about was uh, connection. And that's what rapport is all about, right? And, you know, most test manuals, and there's actually, you know, there's an extensive section in, for example, the, the personality assessment inventory manual, in the Wexler manuals, uh, there are paragraphs in there that talk about the necessity of rapport. They don't say, you know, it's a, it, it, it'd be kind of a nice idea if you uh, develop some rapport with this child. They talk about it as a necessity to make that connection and that rapport to get them motivated. But... Uh, you know, so it really comes down to motivation in that moment. I think what you're talking about has more to do with their motivation to engage life more generally. And they may be very motivated to do that. But two hours into a six-hour exam, <laughs> um, they may be spacing off. And... Uh, not trying as hard on those darn matrices uh, as they could, you know, and just the sheer boredom. Um, and certainly, you know, a, a part of self-efficacy is also self-monitoring. Uh, and, uh, you know, they may not be self-monitoring uh, during that time as well, because after all, we're talking about kids, right? And as you know, I, I, I'll keep using that phrase. They wax and wane. <laughs> they, uh, you know, from one minute to the next. And so while they're related, and the concepts are related, and some of the things you're talking about enhance the probability that we're getting maximum effort during our exams, uh, we really have to measure it because kids, Kids are not a model of consistency. You know, they just aren't. <laughs> so true. And I bet they don't find it that much fun no. to spend time with us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, it, it's not as much fun. It's uh, uh, it, it's not more fun than humans ought to be allowed to have. Is that right? so. So you mentioned that you have a new test that was released last spring for performance validity. Yes. And what are available through? Um, Eric, you, you broke up on me just a little bit there. Uh, uh, sorry. the end of your question. Um, what the title of your test and publisher is from? It's, um, it's published by uh, MHS, which is Multi-Health Systems. And uh, the... It's actually five tests that we bundled into a package, and we call it the Pediatric Performance Validity Test Suite. And, um, and it comes all together. You get all five tests. They're, they're co-normed. Uh, and you can use um, 
as many or as few as you want. You can use them in any combination. We normed them uh, by randomizing the administration. Uh, so there are no uh, uh, sequencing effects. Doesn't matter which one you give first and which one you give last or how many you give. And we actually report the results um, immediately uh, at the end of each one. And we report results uh, in part in terms of uh, the frequency of failure rates on the specific tests and combinations of tests that you chose to give out of that suite of five. So let's say you gave test number one and test number three. Uh, we would give you the actual data on pass fail rates of that combination of two measures. Uh, we tell you the pass fail rate of each independently, but then we also give you the pass fail rate for that specific combination. And then maybe later, you know, maybe two and a half hours later, uh, you give, you know, test number five out of that suite of tests. Then we give you all of that all over again. And that pops up immediately on the screen at the end of the at the end of each test. And each of these five tests runs about three to five minutes. Um, so it's not adding a lot of time to your battery, and it flows really smoothly. They're fully digital, by the way. Uh, they can be done on any. Um, it, basically any electronic device that has a touch screen or a mouse or a pointer, uh, any of those. So basically you can do it on a, on a desktop, a laptop, a tablet, an iPad, whatever. Uh, we do not, uh, we can't stop you from doing it on your phone, but we tell you not to. <laughs> uh, there's a minimum screen size that, uh, uh, that we hold it to, uh, but you know that there are ways people could get around that. But we're very clear telling people not to do it on any, anything smaller than, than an iPad, basically. Um, so it's fully digital, uh, and that's one of the that's one of the reasons you get the results pop up immediately, and uh, and so you know right then you don't have to wait and score it later and try to figure it out. It tells you when the kid finishes the last item, all you do is, is punch in your, your code and, the, and then the results pop up uh, on the screen for you. So that makes it easy. Um, it's set up so uh, on a subscription model. So you pay an annual fee and you get unlimited use. So that way you don't have to sit there and worry about, well, uh, you know, I, I, I just spent a dollar because I gave that test. Now, do, you know, am I going to, if I give another one, do I want to spend another dollar? Or, or <laughs> So you can mix and match. You can do as much of this as you want. Um, you can repeat them over time. You do whatever you want to do. Um, and uh, it's just an annual subscription fee and unlimited use. Uh, 
That's awesome. I like how easy it sounds and how uh, quick it is. And um, the fact that you can do it kind of periodically throughout your, your testing session uh, sounds really good. And I know that's kind of in, in line. We were talking a little bit before we aired about how, how much I love the RIOS because yeah. it is so quick and so easy. And so it sounds very much in line with uh, well, his work with uh, that. So you know, awesome. I have done so many exams over my lifetime. Uh, that I am a great believer in designing tests to be administered and scored as easily as possible. There's no reason to make the administration difficult. Uh, uh, there just isn't. I mean, we need to look, constantly be looking for ways to make the test easier to administer and easier to score. And there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, I mean, that go even beyond our time, right? Uh, our time is very valuable and the time it takes to learn to do these correctly and the time it takes to actually administer them, the more complicated the administration longer it takes. But also what we know is the more complicated it is to use the test, the more mistakes we make. And I don't care how good you think you are, you're going to make mistakes. I, I will share with you that uh, when I had a much busier practice, uh, and was still teaching at the university. Uh, you know, always when I taught the assessment classes, and, and I bet you guys went through this too, wherever you were, you had to video yourself giving, you know, a, a Wexer or whatever. And then the whoever's teaching your class would go through that, right? And it's relatively humiliating, right? For the, the, the first few times you do that. <coughs> well, in order not to be a, a true hypocrite, I would do that to myself annually. Uh, every year for about 25 years, I would get consent from the parents of a kid that I was evaluating, and I would video my entire exam, my interview, all of my testing, everything, once a year. And then I would sit down um, and often uh, with a drink in my hand because I needed it to watch that video <laughs> and watch myself and see what kind of bad habits I had developed in the last year and what kind of mistakes I made. And I, there was always something. There was always something I would find. And I encourage people to do that, by the way, but I'm not naive enough to believe that uh, most people are going to do it. It's painful. Those what an amazing teaching tool, though. Like, even just for your students to, to know that it's okay to develop, yeah. you, you know, and to, to learn from, um, you know. Some yeah, after, but, but after I watched that videotape, I burned it. Yeah. <laughs> there was no way I'd ever let anybody see that, <laughs> especially my students. <laughs> but I would tell them about it, sure. and I would sometimes tell them, "Yeah, and 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 I know you'll make this mistake someday because I made it, exactly. and I teach you not to do this." And then I caught myself doing it. And there's this phenomenon. This phenomenon is actually documented also in the literature. It's called examiner drift. You're never as good technically in administering tests as you are the day you walk out of your, your graduate program. 
<laughs> Technically, you get you do get better. You get more relaxed overall. You get better at developing rapport. You get better at a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But our technical skill in getting the administration exactly right the way it is in the manual will drift. And th the only way you can correct that is, is to video yourself once a year and sit down and look at it in private and don't let anybody else see it. That's great. Yeah. If you know you're not going to let anybody else see it, right. you'll do your usual exam. You won't do anything any differently. If you know somebody else is going to look at it, it won't be your typical testing, right? right. You'll do something different. But that's something I encourage people to do. And I will say that I, I did it for 25 years, but I quit. And, uh, <laughs> Having, having interns watch you administer tests also really keeps you on your toes. Yeah. That's yeah. a tough experience sometimes. Yeah. And when I was, uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, I was Alan Kaufman's uh, teaching assistant for all of his assessment classes. And one of the things that I did as his teaching assistant was every test that we taught, I administered to someone. Uh, and the whole class would observe through the one-way glass. So every test we taught, I had Alan Kaufman and his whole class watch me do with a uh, with someone, and uh, that can be pretty intimidating. <laughs> you wouldn't want me watching you give the read up. And. No. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so you, don't, you don't really want Alan Kaufman watching you uh, give the KBC. Or, uh, and you know, uh, you may or may not know, you probably do, that Alan Kaufman was the first person to ever revise a Wexler scale. Uh, Alan revised the WISC and turned it into the WISC R. So uh, when we would teach the WISC R, which we were teaching back then, that's how old I am. Um, it, you know, he'd be standing back there watching me uh, demonstrate how you're supposed to do it to all the students in the class. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I was too stupid to be as nervous as I should have been. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a good question, um, just to clarify, from a viewer. He asks, is the idea behind the performance validity test that they are actually simple to complete, but they appear to be complex? Yes. Yes. You, you design tests, and we designed a lot, of, uh, a lot of different tests to get down to five that really worked. Uh, we designed a whole bunch of them, but uh, uh, then and some of them just didn't work. Uh, you know, some of them were too easy, and some of them actually turned out to be too hard. Uh, but they have to have the appearance of being hard. That's how they work. But in reality, almost everybody gets all the items right. If they try. Mm -hmm. If they really try. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, I'm going to ask if anybody has any last-minute questions. Before we run, we're running out of time, so get last-minute questions in. But I also well, want to ask you a little bit about um, what your thoughts are of school psychology in the midst of this pandemic. How, is this going to play out differently for us? I, 
how are test companies doing amidst um, this whole new, I know that like, there's just a lot going on. What are, what are your there's a, there's a lot going on. And, and um, uh, you know, I'm, uh, quite frankly, I'm, I'm glad I'm not working in the schools as a school psychologist right now. Um, boy, you talk about a difficult job. Um, school psychologists are being asked to do things that are close to being impossible uh, and not being given the extra time. And, and I'm not sure given the questions that I'm getting, and I'm getting an enormous number of emails from school psychologists everywhere about uh, problems both with assessments and, and what they, you know, what they can do and, and what best practice might be in this environment. And they're not getting as much support, I don't think, administratively as they need. Uh, we're just not getting it. And uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a hard job. On the other hand, it is our job as a profession to do what we can do to help kids in this time. And that does mean identifying kids who are having acute issues. I've seen some people, somebody posted on one of the school psych listservs just recently that we should not do any kind of screening for emotional and behavioral issues now. Because, well, it's going to be because there's going to, you know, so many kids are going to be having problems because of the pandemic and the other sociocultural issues that are going on. And my reaction to that is, you know, that's exactly why we need to step up screening. Just because the kids are experiencing acute problems as opposed to chronic long-term problems doesn't mean they're not in distress and don't need help. And we should be identifying those kids to the extent that we can and providing them what they need so these don't turn into long-term chronic problems. If there was ever a time to practice prevention, this is it. If there was ever a time to convince the schools that we do need to do large-scale screening to pick up the kids who are being most adversely impacted by this emotionally, now is the time. So we need to identify and serve those kids. We need not to sit back and say, well, uh, it, you know, uh, it, you know, they're not emotional. They're not truly emotionally disturbed because it, this is not of something that's long-standing, and uh, you know, so they're, they're, they won't be eligible for ED. So let's not bother. Uh, you know, the kids are just as distressed, <laughs> and that's what I think as a profession we have an obligation to deal with, and that's not and that's not easy. That's not easy. So uh, I think we've got to have more time to deal with individual cases, because I think it's going to take longer to do exams in this environment. We've got to be much more careful about getting very detailed histories about kids. We've got to have a lot more information from parents about the, the kid's entire life up to this moment, uh, as well as the current context of their life. We've got to do a better job of doing detailed clinical interviews with the children 
And that's something I harp on. It's kind of one of my soapbox issues is we need to do really good clinical interviews with kids. And now is the time that cries out for doing that even more so and in even more detail. We've got to do that. So we need more time for each case now, not less. We need more time for each case, which means we need more. Oh no, he's frozen. Uh, I was just thinking. Uh, there we go. There you are. We flipped out right there, but I'm back. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened, but but your your question about test publishers and kind of how they're doing. Um, they're suffering economically, all of them. Uh, I know that. Um, and uh, a lot of employees uh, across the board are being furloughed, just as they are with other small businesses. Uh, test publishing, with the kinds of tests that school psychologists use, is not a big, massive, you know, corporate um, concern. Uh, most of the companies are owned by families. They are family-owned businesses, the majority of test publishing companies. Uh, Pearson is the only major test publishing company that's publicly traded. And they're actually not traded other than as a subsidiary of the larger uh, corporation that owns them, of Pearson, uh, of Pearson LLC. Um, but even Pearson's clinical assessment division is not is nearly as big as people think. Uh, I think they, they, when they think about Pearson, they think about big Pearson, right? And the Pearson Clinical Assessment Division is not that much bigger than the other uh, major test publishers out there. Uh, they're all uh, remarkably similar uh, in terms of size. And so they're all, and they are all suffering. They're furloughing employees. They are having to put data collection projects on hold. Uh, in-person testing for Norman uh, is just uh, out of the question right now for most of them. Some of them are beginning to dip their toes back in that water with, uh, with some very restrictive kinds of guidelines. Um, they are doing some remote testing. Uh, we are uh, developing some new tests, actually, that had been planned to be administered uh, totally on the internet anyway, totally remotely. They're, be, they're fully digital products. There will be no paper and pencil, but these were actually designed and were projects that we initiated prior to the, to the pandemic because we're moving in that direction. Uh, I had published several tests with PAR, uh, the, uh, the RATE, the Reynolds Adaptable Intelligence Test, and the TOGRA, the Test of General Reasoning Ability. In, we published those in 2016 and we normed them fully digitally. Um, they're normed for remote administration. And it, it was interesting because people were very resistant to using them until around April <laughs> of this year. Uh, they become a lot more popular than they were. Uh, but, they, but, but we did that back in 2016. We began to initiate that shift to fully digital products uh, and things that can be done remotely uh, because, you know, th that's where the world's headed, uh, I think. But there's still a place for 
seeing kids and doing uh, doing individual exams with the kids sitting there in the room. And we're going to get back to that. We're going to get back to that. But uh, there is going to continue to be a need for digital assessment. Uh, and uh, we do have some things underway in that domain. But things like, for example, the, uh, you know, uh, ProEd was ready to norm the new Stanford Binet. And that's going to be delayed a full year. You know, so we will be affected just as they are affected because things that we need new additions of are going to be delayed anywhere from a year to maybe three years in terms of getting new things out. I had an intern uh, this past year and she kind of asked me, you know, oh, do you think they'll renorm some of this test to account for the fact that, you know, kids aren't at school and whatnot? And I think that that's probably a misconception that, that it's easy to just renorm yeah. a test, like even without a pandemic to just, okay, we'll renorm it. I mean, this is a yeah. huge endeavor of a, of a process yeah. to do. So I'm imagining that, yes, in COVID, yeah. it's near impossible. Well, <laughs> what, what most people don't understand is that uh, revising an existing test is a minimum three-year project. Minimum. Um, and and that and you're really moving fast if you go from initiation to publication in three years. And that's of an existing test. A new test, and everybody is trying to trying to shave time off of this, but a brand new test that you develop from scratch is a five-year project. So anywhere from three to five years. Uh, so tests that we initiated in March, you guys won't ever hear about them until four years from now. And that'll be the pre-marketing stuff. So we have other things in different stages, you know, that, um, but uh, most people don't realize how long these projects are. You do, that. there's so much that you have to do if you do it right. Uh, you don't just, you don't just sit around one day and make up test items. And, you know, in a week later, start collecting data. Uh, that's, as they say, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works, right? <laughs> I love it. I feel like we need to do a screenshot of you and and yeah. that theme, and we'll share it in all the school cycle places. <laughs> but um, I we have some questions here, and then I know we're probably getting close to where we need to uh, wrap things up. But this has been a great conversation. But let me see. Um, let's see. We had a question about what are your thoughts on reliability, validity uh, for like pandemic statements. And my own district has been working on something along those lines too, a cautionary statement of interpret this with caution because we don't know what, what the pandemic's going to yeah. do to results in general. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Well, uh, you know, I hear people say all the time, well, I, I, I interpreted it with caution. And I typically then ask people, and, and when I when I hear people say that on the witness stand, I, I get a lawyer to ask them uh, exactly what what does that mean when you say you interpreted it with caution? What did you do that was cautious? And the typical answer I get is, well, I I was cautious in doing that, <laughs> or I, I was especially careful. Well, how did you change anything that you did? So I, you know. I'm not a big fan of those kinds of generic statements. Uh, 
I would approach it a little differently. I would approach it um, by writing something along these lines in, in a report if I were writing a report now. Uh, I would say that, uh, let, let's say, for example, uh, you've got some teacher rating scale data from a BAS. This is a question I get a lot. What do we do with that? Now, and it's, and it's virtual learning. Well, how in the world can you get valid information from that? Well, you know, I might approach that like this and say that, well, you know, um, Johnny's teacher completed a, a BAS three teacher rating scheme. Uh, but these observations were based on a virtual learning environment. In a typical in-person classroom environment, such as existed prior to the pandemic, I would interpret these teacher ratings to indicate the following. However, there is no data available to indicate whether or not these interpretations remain accurate for observations made in a virtual learning environment. So I would phrase it that way, but then I'd go on. I wouldn't stop there because I need to serve this kid. Obviously this kid was referred, right? I gotta do something. So I'm not gonna be totally dismissive of the teacher's ratings. So I've said, here's what they would have meant. I don't know if there's data to support making that same interpretation now, but the parent rating scale was consistent in the following areas. And I would talk about that. And then I would say, and Johnny's self-report indicated to me additional consistencies with these findings or inconsistencies, whichever it is. And then I would go on even further and say, and a detailed history of Johnny's behavior going back over the last several years revealed to me the following consistencies as well. And when I interviewed Johnny, Johnny told me, and this, so I would put that whole package together. And in the end, I would talk about the conclusions that I felt like were reasonable for me to reach based on all of that information. And that's what I would consider being cautious. That I did a comprehensive evaluation here. I gathered information from multiple sources in multiple settings. I took a very detailed history. I interviewed the child. I got the child's perspective on all things related to how they think, feel, and behave. And here are the consistencies and inconsistencies among all of that information. And based on that, here are the conclusions I think are reasonable to draw. And it may be that when I get to that point and say, and here are the conclusions that are reasonable to draw, I might have to say, 
that the disparities in information and behavior were so great that it is best to defer at this point in time making any judgments about a special education placement. However, it is apparent that some behavioral supports could be profitably put into place until such time as we can complete an even more comprehensive evaluation. So, you know, it comes ultimately back to one child at a time. I'm not a fan of blanket statements. <laughs> um, and that's about as blanket a statement as I'm going to make. It comes back to one child at a time. But that's how I would approach it rather than just sticking a, a statement at the beginning that says, well, because of the pandemic, we need to be cautious about all this. Also, okay, so uh, when there's not a pandemic, you're not cautious about evaluating kids and saying they should be in special ed. Is that what I hear you saying? So, uh, and, and that's exactly what, what I would have a lawyer ask you if that was in a, in a, in a courtroom setting. Uh, oh, you're all, you were only cautious during the pandemic. <laughs> so I, I'm always cautious. I'm always careful. Uh, so uh, I would approach it that way. And, and again, I like the idea of saying, you know, in, in under typical circumstances, I would have I would make the following interpretations of this, but we lack sufficient data at this time to know if those interpretations remain reasonable. But when I look at those in the context of all this other data, here's what is reasonable. So so that's how I would approach that. So I'm seeing we've got some more questions, but I know that we're we're short on time, and we're so thankful for you to come. Um, should we tell people to email you, or are you are you interested in chatting a little bit more? And I also want to say that if, um, you know Dr. Reynolds is on all the Facebook groups, and people just tag him with all the questions, and he and he'll email back and he's and somebody made the statement that um they they want dr reynolds to be you know their phone a friend and um, he totally is he, he, will, he will totally answer you so fear not uh, well certainly people if they have if they have specific questions and things i uh, i haven't already addressed on here that they they have specific questions about certainly they can email me um i do not use facebook messenger uh, that's not a good way to get me uh, but uh, you could, you're welcome to drop me an email. I'm much better at email than I am at Messenger. So. Awesome. Um, okay, and I want to remind everybody, um, let's see, we have our next podcast coming up on 920, and that's the continued discussion on uh, racism and police brutality and um, that we had with Dr. Barrett and Dr. Proctor. So that's going to be a really good one, and I hope to see people tuning in uh, for that. That'll be at our evening time as well. And um, thank you so much, Dr. Reynolds. This has been well, amazing. Thank you. Well, <laughs> um, I, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, well, we we more appreciate you. But Erica, do you want to close this out? I know that you have kind of our, our statement from our sponsor. Sure. Yes, we're grateful, Dr. Reynolds. And before we go, we want to just, again, thank our sponsor, 
advanced school staffing for their continued support of school psychologists nationwide. As the leader in school staffing nationwide, the genuine care, benefits, and guidance they demonstrate with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner in career success. To learn more about advanced school staffing and discover the ways that they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit advancedschoolstaffing.com slash school psyched exclamation point. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Reynolds. Can I put in a, uh, just tell people again where they can find if they're interested in the pediatric performance validity test suite, just go to the uh, MHS website. I think it's just uh, www.mhs.com. And it's the pediatric performance validity test suite. You shouldn't have any trouble finding it there. And if you have questions about it, email. That's awesome. I'm definitely checking it out. I think okay. it's something that I'm going to look to add to my battery. So. Okay. Thanks again, guys. Thank right. you. Bye-bye.